Hello and welcome to episode 49 of the JS Bach Files. I'm Terence O'Grady, and today we're going to look at Bach's musical offering. Bach authority Malcolm Boyd, along with others, has made the point that in Bach's final years, he composed not for the church, not for a princely court, not even for the more intimate circle of a collegium musicum, but rather in such works as the musical offering and the art of the fugue, he addressed himself at most to a small coterie of connoisseurs. And, as Boyd characterizes them, these two are above all works in which Bach, the composer-philosopher, is alone with the impenetrable mysteries of his art. In the last ten years of his life, Bach continued to fulfill his duties as cantor, although without a great deal of enthusiasm, it sometimes seemed, and he maintained his lifelong interest in organs and organ building, continuing to examine and approve new organs in Leipzig and the surrounding areas. And of course, he continued to be interested in the well-being of his children, helping them advance in their musical careers whenever possible. It was in connection with a visit to Carl Philipp Emanuel in Potsdam, where CPE was employed as a harpsichordist, to greet his son's family in 1747 that Bach's encounter with Frederick the Great took place, one which led directly to the composition of the musical offering. Frederick was in some respects a remarkable ruler, but our interest today will focus on his musicianly qualities. He was by all accounts a very competent flutist and composer in the fashionable gallant style and he surrounded himself with skilled musicians and a great deal of music-making. The chance to encounter Frederick and his illustrious group of musicians firsthand made the journey to Potsdam an even more attractive one for the senior Bach. For the sake of providing a little bit of context, here's a brief excerpt of one of Frederick's compositions, his Flute Concerto No. 4 in D Major, the second movement. As far as the details of the meeting between Frederick and J.S. Bach, slightly different versions of this encounter exist. A report in a local Berlin newspaper from May of 1747 states that Frederick called for Old Bach, as he was referred to, to join the group when informed of Bach's arrival at court. Frederick then, perhaps spontaneously, went to the new pianoforte there in the music room and played for Bach the now very famous royal theme, which we'll say more about later, and asked him to improvise a fugue based on it. 
it's a little difficult to imagine that the king actually made up the theme on the spot. Although he was certainly a capable composer, it would not have been the sort of thematic material to which he would normally have gravitated. Of course, it's also possible that Bach, in his later version of the piece, may have changed the theme a bit to make it more suitable. Christoph Wolf, for example, refers to the likelihood that Bach polished it up a bit. The other most often quoted version of the story is attributed to Wilhelm Friedemann Bach, who had accompanied his father on the trip to Potsdam. Wilhelm Friedemann's version, related many years later, is more detailed and refers to his father trying out various instruments available in Frederick's palace. According to him, Frederick was impressed by Bach's initial improvised fugue on the theme given to him, but asked that Bach then produce a six-part fugue on the same theme. Bach reputedly replied to the effect that not all themes worked well for that sort of treatment, but complied with a theme he chose himself. Wilhelm Friedemann went on to explain how his father stayed the next day to try out various organs in the city. This report of Frederick's unfulfilled request for a six-part fugue is often treated with some skepticism, although Bach did, of course, include a six-part fugue along with a written-out version of the three-part fugue he improvised and various complex canons in his grandly engraved musical offering collection later sent as a gift to Frederick, who, as far as we know, made no reply. Bach also had the collection printed in a similar but more modest format and gave away some copies of this version to friends while also making some available for purchase. We'll turn now to the printed version of the first fugue, or Ricercar, as Bach refers to it. The title Ricercar, which means to seek out, generally is used to refer to the older types of fugues, dating back into the late Renaissance, but is probably used here to be compatible with the overall title of the set, a Latin inscription on the inside front page, the initial letters of which spell out the word Ricercar and a literal translation of which is, by the king's command, the theme and its variations resolved in canonic art. Frederick's theme, which bears some resemblance to Handel's fugue in A minor, HWV 609, began simply enough by ascending up the tonic C minor triad and then continuing up a half-step to the sixth scale degree. The next gesture, however, is a dramatic one, a descending leap of a diminished seventh to the raised leading tone. Here are the first five notes of the subject again. The leading tone, the raised seventh scale degree, does not do what we probably expected to do, move up a half step to the tonic C, but instead leaps up a minor sixth to a G on the fourth beat of the measure. That's not totally unexpected, of course, because B natural and G are found in the same chord, the dominant chord in C minor. That G turns out to be the high point 
from which a long descending chromatic line begins, down to F-sharp, F-natural, E-natural, E-flat, etc., all the way down to the lower B-natural. That's eight descending half-steps in a row, a very unusual melodic maneuver. Fast-moving descending chromatic scales are by no means unheard of, even at this point, but this series of descending chromatic steps unfolds fairly slowly, in half notes for the first four notes, and quarter notes thereafter. In other words, it seems likely that each note will have to be harmonized separately as we proceed, and harmonizing a string of descending half-steps in a manner such that you still hear a single, controlling sense of tonality is not an easy task, as any music theory student will tell you. Here's the second part of the theme, the descending chromatic line ending on a B natural, which continues downward with an A natural using the melodic form of the minor on the way to G. The last part of the subject sets up a cadence on the tonic chord of C minor. Okay, let's hear the subject, nine bars long, in action in the first exposition. It's presented first in the soprano voice, that is, the top line in the right hand, and in measure 10, the subject is imitated by the alto voice, up a fifth, as is the norm for a fugue of this sort, but actually heard down a fourth since the alto voice comes in in the lower octave. Against the alto's entrance with the subject, the soprano continues with something of a counter-subject. It's a fairly lively one, moving in shorter note values than the subject does initially, primarily staccato quarter notes and eighth notes. In the first few measures, it jumps around quite a bit, but by the fifth measure, it tends to move in more conjunct or stepwise motion. And, of course, it clarifies the harmonic implications inherent in the subject by filling in some of the chordal gaps. I'm referring to it as something of a counter-subject here, because although it does sometimes return with the subject, it doesn't always return with it. So, it wouldn't be considered a real counter-subject in the strictest sense. Here are the first 22 measures. You may have noticed that after the alto line finished its version of the subject, we heard a brief episodic passage where imitation was not in play. In this passage, only four bars long, both the soprano and alto lines continue with both voices drawing some motivic material from the initial counter-subject, but not restricted to it. Then the bass voice enters. You heard just the beginning of it in my excerpt, 
back on the original tonic note of C, but down a couple of octaves from the original. Against it, the alto voice picks up the original countersubject, or at least aspects of it, while the soprano proceeds with a mostly new line, combining eighth notes, half notes, and quarter notes tied across the beat to suggest a subtle syncopation. Here is the bass's entrance with the accompanying voices. As you probably noticed, when the bass finished its statement of the subject, it kept right on going. In fact, it increased its rhythmic activity by moving to a series of scale-wise eighth notes, then concluding the first exposition with a cadence in C minor, and then charging right into the next episode. That episode is 14 bars long, and while it doesn't feature actual imitation of the subject, it makes a number of references to various motives from that subject, most notably the falling half-steps. But it also introduces new motives, the most distinctive of which is a motive based on ascending eighth-note triplets, followed by a descending line. This new motive is heard in both alto and soprano voices, and in fact echoes back and forth between them. Some commentators have made the point that these triplets and possibly also some passages where the voices proceed in parallel thirds and sixths, are a nod toward the gallant style, to which Frederick was obviously disposed. Eventually, the soprano voice also introduces a new, highly syncopated idea against what amounts to a walking bass line in the lowest voice. Here is again the conclusion of the bass's entrance and the episode that follows which itself ends with a modulation to G minor and another introduction of the subject in the bass. The countermelodies at this point draw from the triplet motives of the episode and also feature a series of suspensions and sequences. I'm not going to unfold this entire fugue. The subject enters several more times, as you would expect, but there are also long developmental episodes between those re-entries, perhaps more than usual for a Bach fugue. These episodes make many references to the original theme, or parts of it, perhaps the opening four notes, perhaps the descending chromatic line, sometimes heard in diminution in shorter note values. 
Sometimes parts of one theme in one voice are juxtaposed with a different part of the theme in another, occasionally even heard in inversion. The ascending chromatic half-steps in the bass line making a particularly strong effect. It's all remarkably clever, and as some commentators have pointed out, it's almost difficult to believe that all of these connections with the theme or its countersubject above and beyond the fugal entrances, could actually have been improvised before the king. It's certainly hard to imagine anyone other than Bach, in his generation, accomplishing it. At any rate, we are going to move on now to the very remarkable Richard in Six Voices. In this Richard each of the six parts is provided with its own separate staff, an arrangement which has led to multiple performances of the piece by a variety of different instrumental combinations. There's nothing wrong with such performances, of course, but Bach did make sure that all six parts could be covered by a skilled keyboard player, and I'm going to use a keyboard example for my excerpts today. Since you're already familiar with the royal theme, which begins in the third staff from the top, or voice three, the first thing I'm going to play is the countersubject, a persistent one which enters in measure five in the second voice, one down from the top staff. This countersubject is not identical with the original countersubject for the three-part fugue, but it does share some attributes with it. The rhythmic motive featuring an eighth note followed by two sixteenths, which we hear almost at the beginning, is new, but the consecutive ascending leaps in quarter notes, which seem to propel the momentum forward, these could be found in the last countersubject as well, although they're missing the staccato articulations here. This countersubject is more prone to suspensions, however, and the line here is more broken up by rests in the third measure than in the corresponding section in the first countersubject. Of course, the most important thing it has in common with the first countersubject is, like that one, it's designed to combine harmonically with the subject. I mentioned a minute ago that you were probably familiar with the subject at this point, but I should point out that when the first fugal imitation enters in measure 5 in voice 2, the second staff from the top, it does so with a tonal answer, up a fifth. Of course, we've seen these before because they're quite common. The basic shape of the subject is imitated, but the intervals are not quite the same. Here's an example showing the first bar of the original subject and the first bar of the answer from voice two transposed to the same starting note for comparative purposes. They're not that different, but they are different. The third note is changed from the D we might have expected, the fifth of the minor triad, now based on G in the answer, is shifted down a step to C. And one of the reasons this change is made to the imitative answer is so that it can be compatible with the prevailing harmony at that point. 
Bach wants to project a C minor tonic chord on the third beat of the measure, and the note D would obviously not be compatible with it. There are other reasons why a composer might choose to use a tonal answer rather than a real answer, one in which every note of the melody is transposed up a perfect fifth, but this is one of the most basic. Let's hear the actual piece, the first 30 measures. You'll hear the first imitative entrance in measure 5, as I mentioned. In measure 9, the subject returns in C minor in voice 5, one up from the bottom. In measure 13, the subject returns on G again in voice 4. In measures 17 and 18, a linking passage featuring a striking ascending chromatic line transforms the G minor tonality into C minor to prepare us for the return of the subject in C minor in the top voice. Voice number 6, the bottom voice, finally gets into the act in measure 25, providing its answer back in G minor. While the imitative entrances, the answers to this subject, are of course very important, it could be argued that the greatest artistry comes in the juggling of the imitation of the subject, the counter-subject, and the other four voices, which sustain contrapuntal lines that may draw motivically from the subject and counter-subject, but do not replicate them, and seem to provide an endless variety of textures, rhythmic patterns, and suspended dissonances, often one after another, each in a different voice, all the while maintaining compatibility with the prevailing harmonic pattern, which must move forward in a logical way while visiting different key areas as it goes. 
Following the first exposition, with fugal entrances occurring in every part, there is a long developmental episode in which, amidst key changes, various elements of the subject appear in different voices and in different combinations, the descending chromatic motion dominating in particular. Eventually, the subject in its original form is reintroduced in the seemingly unlikely key of B-flat minor in voice 5. It's in the middle of the texture and surrounded by a lot of activity from the other voices, some of it derived from the subject, that descending chromatic line again, and some from the original countersubject, so it's not easy to pick up at first hearing. We also experience some near sightings of the original subject as we continue, one in A-flat major in voice 4, followed a little later by one beginning on G, a tonal answer in voice 2, that eventually contributes to a roundabout modulation back to C minor. The final reference is an obvious one, appearing in the bottom voice in C minor and bringing the whole movement to a close. We're going to move on now to the four-movement trio sonata, probably his greatest, a work which also makes use of the royal theme, although not always in such an obvious way. It's written for transverse flute, the king's instrument, violin and continuo, and is in the form of an older sonata da chiesa, with slow, fast, slow, fast movements and some use of imitation. The first movement, again in C minor, is in 3-4 time and marked largo. It makes use of a lovely, highly atmospheric melody which manages to convey a definite sense of pathos, its gallant-sounding trills notwithstanding. Here are the first eight bars of the first section. theme is not quoted here, but it is referenced. The descending minor sixth in the first two bars of the royal theme is inverted here to begin the melody. It's followed by an expressive descending leap to a trilled leading tone. We don't experience the descending chromatic line in this melody to the same extent as in the last, but descending half-steps still play an important role. The first two bars of the violin's melody are immediately imitated a fourth higher by the flute, and although exact imitation ends after that point, the two melody instruments continue to trade 16th note motives, which ascend passionately only to descend with a pattern of slurred seconds. You heard that motive in the continual bass expressed clearly right at the end of my excerpt at which point we've managed to move to G major, the dominant in the key. And speaking of the continual bass, it also plays a role in echoing the royal theme, although it does so with more subtlety. Moving up by step from the tonic note, it outlines a minor sixth, after which it plunges down to a leading tone in emulation of the royal theme. 
It also engages in some motivic exchange with the two melody parts above it, as you heard. In the second eight bars of this first section, which began by tilting us in the direction of F minor, the opening motive of the melody is repeated in the flute, beginning on C, and then answered down a fourth by the violin a measure later. But it doesn't unfold in the same way this time, instead reverting to that expressive ascending-then-descending 16th note motive I mentioned a minute ago. As we move through the second eight bars, the references to the royal theme become even clearer, especially the dramatic descending leap, which is obviously one of its defining gestures. Many of the same motivic ideas are in play in the second, longer section of the movement, which begins in E-flat, the relative major, but as usual in the second section of a movement like this, Bach will touch on a number of other keys before settling back in C minor. But we are going to move on now to the second movement. In 2-4 time, C minor again and marked allegro, it features a classic Bachian melody with a strong opening phrase and a second phrase consisting of a descending figuration pattern. The theme is presented first in the violin and then imitated at the fifth by the flute. We'll hear it to measure 33 with a cadence on the dominant. As you could hear, after the first imitation is complete, Bach does introduce some new or partially new motives, one built on a free inversion of the opening two bars and one involving an alternation of two sixteenths and a sustained note creating an across-the-bar suspension. But at this point, the movement seems to owe relatively little to the royal theme, except perhaps for the repeated pattern of descending half-steps in the figuration pattern. But as the piece continues, the references to that theme grow stronger. Here's another excerpt, starting where the previous one left off, which introduces another new thematic idea, a rather gallant-sounding one, only a single measure in length, which arpeggiates a seventh chord, falls back a step, and then drops a sixth to a trilled note in the flute's version. This idea is tossed back and forth between the soloists, descending sequentially in the process. But when this figure has been temporarily exhausted, 
the continual bass now draws attention to itself with a complete quotation of the royal theme in G minor. The continual bass is not finished with the royal theme. Fourteen bars later, it brings it back, this time in C minor. Several measures after that, the violin quotes the entire royal theme, again in C minor, giving it even more prominence. Later, after a one-measure switch to adagio has provided something of a dividing line, the violin presents the opening theme of the movement, and a measure later, the flute quotes the royal theme against it, demonstrating that the royal theme was always implicit in the opening subject, just never made clear until this point. In the closing measures of the movement, the opening subject returns as you would expect, and the royal theme returns with it again, a measure later, but this time back in the bass line. It's a wonderful movement, and we haven't really unraveled all of its interesting details. But we're going to move on now to the third movement, an andante in E-flat major, one which can't seem to decide whether it's a frothy exercise in the gallant style, or whether it has deeper, or at least more pensive, inclinations. Here are the opening measures. You heard, beginning in the fifth measure, the continual bass line beginning to drop by half-steps. In fact, it's this chromatic movement, along with some strategically placed diminished chords and any number of suspended dissonances, which seems to briefly draw the music away from its gallant complacency toward an emotionally more complex mood. And the descending half-steps almost have the last word, re-entering near the end of the movement. And yet, despite its harmonic subtleties, this is a movement which might well have pleased Frederick. The final movement of the trio sonata, in 6-8, marked allegro and back in C minor, has definite gigue-like attributes, but is nevertheless heavily influenced by the descending chromatic half-steps of the royal theme. We'll hear the first 24 measures, where the theme is announced by the flute, and then eight bars later, imitated down a fourth by the violin. 
the theme makes significant use of the descending chromatic half-steps, but initially in incremental steps, separated by rests. When the violin comes in with the theme, the flute's contrapuntal line against it also makes a prominent use of a descending chromatic line, and at one point, the fifth measure of the violin's answer, we have descending chromatic half-steps operating on two levels at once, the flute counterpoint unfolding the line in dotted quarter notes, and the violin melody unfolding it in eighth notes with some ties across the beat. It's a delightful movement with graceful phrases handed back and forth between the violin and flute. But the descending half-steps seem always to be on the verge of breaking through. We'll pick it up in measure 64, leading into a passage where the continual bass also assumes the descending chromatic line, even as it is reflected in both voices above it. It's a wonderful movement to cap off an extraordinary trio sonata, but we are going to move on now to look at some of the ten canons included in the musical offering. Canons were important to Bach, the most learned of the learned contrapuntal forms, and a way of establishing intellectual credibility to some extent. These are certainly not the first we've encountered, you may remember that every third variation in the Goldberg variations was canonic in nature. But later in life, Bach seemed even more intrigued with the form, demonstrated not only by the canons of the musical offering, but by his canonic variations on the Christmas hymn Vom Himmel Hoch, BWV 769 from 1747. In this case, Bach may well have thought that canons in particular might appeal to the intellectual side of Frederick. But as Wolf points out, in this case, he might have overestimated the king's taste for complex musical constructions. But canons of this sort, especially the more complex examples, did decidedly appeal to some other intellectuals of Bach's day. In this connection, Malcolm Boyd stresses Bach's participation in Mitzler's Society of the Musical Sciences, founded by Lorenz Christoph Mitzler, who had been a student of Bach while simultaneously studying theology at Leipzig University. His master's thesis was titled On Whether the Art of Music is Part of Philosophic Wisdom, and his society attracted many of the leading composers of the day, including Handel, Telemann and Graun. Bach himself became a member of that group after the Potsdam visit, at a time when he was still working on the musical offering canons. 
an occasion immortalized by a famous portrait done of Bach painted by Leipzig artist Elias Gottlob Hausmann, in which Bach is holding the manuscript of a six-part canon, BWV 1076. The canonic variations on von Himmelhoek were also submitted to the Society as an example of his musical erudition, and Bach may have intended to submit some or all of the canons from the musical offering as well. How seriously Bach took his membership in this group is somewhat uncertain, but it is clear enough that Bach was more than open to receiving honors of this sort, or even better, honorary musical appointments, although at this late stage Bach was no longer angling for a new position, he remained sensitive throughout his life to the disadvantage his lack of a university education created for him. Anything that might level the playing field in his conflicts with university officials would naturally be useful. Nevertheless, Bach did not turn to the composing of sometimes complex canons merely to solidify his membership in a society of like-minded musicians and intellectuals. He did so because these things attracted him more than ever musically. And so we'll turn to the first of these canons. It's a two-part crab canon, 18 measures long. One part reads the line from beginning to end, and the other reads it backwards, from end to beginning. One of the things to remember about a canon is that the entire composition is derived from a single melodic line. There is no independent countersubject. You'll hear the royal theme presented in longer note values initially, and against it, and in this case above it, you'll hear a faster-moving line. But that faster line is just the theme being played backwards. And unlike as in many fugues, there are no episodes where the imitation ceases. In a sense, it's all imitation all the time, but imitation based on a single melodic line. The next canon is a bit different. It's for two violins in unison over a continual bass line, which is itself based on the royal theme. In this performance, the continual bass line is presented first, with some right-hand embellishment from the performer. And then the first violin plays through its eight-measure melody over the continual. Then the second violin is added, beginning a measure after the first.
The next canon places the royal theme in the top voice, while the bottom two voices work against each other in contrary motion, the lower voice starting two beats after the first. Here is the middle voice alone. Here's the lower voice, which is identical except being in contrary motion. Here are all three parts together with a flute playing the royal theme. Canon number four in augmentation and contrary motion has an ornamented version of the royal theme in the middle staff, played in my example by a violin. The third staff, written in the alto clef, begins. On the third beat of the measure, the top voice enters. It's in contrary motion to the third voice, but it's also in augmentation, which means longer note values. So the leading melody in the third or bottom staff begins after a 16th note rest with two 32nd notes going to a dotted eighth note, followed by a 16th note, followed by a dotted quarter note. But in the top voice, when it comes in in imitation, the note values are doubled. Instead of beginning with a 16th rest followed by two 32nd notes, it uses an 8th rest followed by two 16ths, followed by a quarter note tied to an 8th note, followed by an 8th note, and then a dotted half note. Every note value is double what it is in the bottom voice. And this is what it sounds like. It's beautiful, passionate even, at least in part because of the ornamentation applied to the royal theme. But none of it sounds dry, academic, or struggled over. And yet, if you didn't realize what was going on, you'd have a little difficulty recognizing the relationship between the top and bottom parts. Among the other very clever canons is number five, 
in which the pattern unfolds in such a way that it begins on the next highest note each time through, although the performer has to call a halt at some point, probably after the point about the ascending pattern has been thoroughly made for the listener. But we're going to skip now to canon number 10 in four parts. This and the one before it are puzzle canons. The performer is not given specific instructions as how to solve the work. If they're very experienced at this sort of thing, they might be able to figure it out in their head, so to speak, without actually trying various solutions. Where would the voices all have to enter? Would they make use of inversion or retrograde or augmentation? The use of clefs suggests that the imitation will be at the unison or octave, and that, of course, simplifies things greatly. But the performer still faces a lot of possibilities. Puzzle canons such as these have been around for quite a while, since the early and middle Renaissance, but they can still present great challenges to the performer. The solution in this case is simpler than it might have been. The theme is presented in the top voice, and voice 3 enters two octaves lower in measure 8. The second voice comes in in measure 15 at the unison, and voice 4 in measure 22, two octaves lower again. It's all quite symmetrical, and the result is very lovely. Here is the first part. So what can we say about the musical offering as a whole, considering the whole collection of works and the circumstances under which it was put together? Is it in fact a gift presented in homage to Frederick the Great, 
the musically skilled king who was so associated with the philosophy of the Enlightenment? First of all, on the king's part, why did he extend a personal invitation to Bach, first to attend one of the king's special musical evenings, and later to perform in it in a high-pressure situation? As I've mentioned, the conventional explanation is that his son, C.P.E. Bach, was employed there as a keyboard player in Frederick's court. And Bach Sr. was, after all, widely known throughout much of Germany as a great organist and improviser. Was Bach known as a practitioner of a musical style which was of particular interest to Frederick? No. We know that Bach was capable of appropriating the more modern Gallant style that Frederick preferred, but there's no question that Bach was better known for a strict, contrapuntal style that many people considered passé in the late 1740s, almost certainly Frederick among them. It's likely that old Bach, as Frederick referred to him, was invited to perform an improvisation on a difficult theme much as a magician might be called upon to put on a display of ledger domain, more of a spectacle than an actual musical event. Back to Bach's part in all this. Could he have assumed that the king would be pleased by his offering of two difficult, even austere, richer cars? A number of commentators have made the point that while Bach did include some gallant elements in the two works, it's unlikely they would have seemed that appealing to Frederick, even if they were based on the royal theme. How about the trio sonata? It's a gracious and lovely piece, but it is in the older and more conservative sonata da chiesa style, not exactly the type that would likely be favored by the king and his courtly musicians. And then we have the canons, learned works, but in some cases with surprisingly elegant and attractive musical results when performed. But did Frederick or his musicians ever bother to perform them? You'll recall that Frederick never responded to the musical offering, not as far as it is known, and he appears to have given away his presentation copy of the work. So while the musical offering certainly makes a nod to the great Frederick, Bach really seems to be writing for himself here. In this connection, I'd like once again to refer to Michael Marison's book, Bach and God, which does such a masterful job of delving into some of the deeper connections between Bach's music and his religious beliefs. He puts forth a very interesting argument which suggests that in the musical offering, Bach is asserting a traditional Lutheran perspective which is, in fact, very much in opposition to the Enlightenment-inspired perspective of Frederick's court. But worthy though it is, I'm not going to try to summarize Marison's perspectives here, since he can illuminate them so much better himself. Instead, we're going to close this episode. Our next will focus on Bach's Art of the Fugue. <laughs> 